everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Postcast, a production of the Casper Star Tribune and Pokes Authority. I am Davis Potter, Wyoming beat writer for the Star Tribune, and I hope all of you are healthy and staying safe during this most unprecedented time that we are all going through amid the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, very strange time. Very stressful time for all of us, but um, I hope this podcast can uh, give you an escape or or take your mind off of it. Uh, Maybe for the next 30, 45 minutes to an hour, I don't know, however long I end up going on this podcast, but uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I know it has obviously been a while since we recorded our last podcast, Um, obviously with all this going on, a lot of unknowns, but... Uh, we've gotten some things figured out on on our end, so um, not only wanted to uh, come back with a podcast just because it is it has been a while, but there's been a lot happen uh, on the Wyoming beat over the last month or so. Um, you know, Wyoming hired a new head men's basketball coach who has already signed his first recruiting class. Uh, Wyoming had a couple of players, including Casper's own Logan Wilson, taken in the NFL draft over the weekend. And then will Wyoming or any program in the country, for that matter, play a college football season this fall? That is the question that everybody wants the answer to as we enter May uh, and are just uh, you know a, a few months from some important dates in the college football calendar. So I'll hit on all of that, uh, but uh, let's go ahead and just dive into it. Uh, and I'll start with uh, the most recent noteworthy event and that was the NFL draft over the weekend. Wyoming has Logan Wilson and Cash Malouia both taken in the NFL draft. Logan goes to the Cincinnati Bengals with the 65th overall pick and the first pick of the third round. And then Cash, his running mate at linebacker for the last handful of years, uh, goes to the New England Patriots in the sixth round with the 204th overall pick. Uh, it's pretty it's interesting. It's uh First time since 1989 that Wyoming has had multiple players taken in the same draft at the same position. Uh, And obviously, Logan was the more touted prospect, I guess, going into this draft. I mean, there was no doubt that he was going to get drafted. It was just a matter of of how high in the draft he was going to get taken. Um, You know, he participated in basically every pre-draft event that there was, first at the Senior Bowl in January, and then the NFL Combine in February, where he ran the 4.63 40-yard dash uh, and really started to elevate his draft stock. I think Cash maybe was a more the more surprising pick, um, just because you didn't hear Cash's name a whole lot during the pre-draft process. Uh, you know, you heard more about uh, Elijah Halliburton, the safety who led the Mountain West in, in tackles this past year, or Tyler Hall, the cornerback who ran a sub 4-4-40 at Wyoming's Pro Day and really turned some heads there. But you can make the argument that there was not a more important Pro Day for a prospect than Wyoming's was for Cash Malawia. Because remember, Wyoming was one of the f- few schools that actually got its Pro Day in before everything started getting canceled in early March. And uh, Cash made the most of it. Uh, ran a four five three forty, and uh, really turned some heads with, with that time. And I know the the Patriots are one of the teams that he talked to after uh, the pro day. And uh, now he'll 
obviously get a chance um, to go make a roster there for Bill Belichick in New England. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw him make the 53-man roster and and at the least as, as a rookie uh, contribute on special teams. But, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the Cincinnati Bengals drafting Logan Wilson, obviously the Casper kid who became the first player to graduate from a Casper high school who played at Wyoming to be drafted since Alan Griffin did it in 1986. I wanted to talk about the, you know, not only him getting drafted, but sort of our experience going at home with him. Um, his fa- him and his family invited the Star Tribune into uh, his father's home where the, everybody watched the draft uh, to document that experience, um, cover it. And uh, first of all, I just want to thank Logan and his dad, Trevor, and that entire family for allowing us to basically go all access with them um, throughout the draft. We were the only media outlet that went in home with him throughout the entire draft up until the Cincinnati Bengals selected him with the first pick of the third round. You know, it's it's interesting because the first time that I've ever gone in home on draft day with a, with a prospect to, to, to cover that moment – um, and you know, you're obviously as a reporter, you're there to do a job. You're there for a reason, but you also don't want to interfere too much. So it's it's kind of that back and forth of you know, at, you know, trying to get some some reaction from him and, and family members and friends that were uh, you know sitting around the living room with him during that, just to get some feedback or you know what they're thinking, what their reaction. Um, but you don't want to be in there too much. You don't want to bother them. Um, all that much because mostly it's just sitting there and and observing and examining sort of the, the raw reactions to things as they're happening live. And you know Thursday was just the first round, and you know Logan wasn't expected to be picked. Um, you know I had a source with direct knowledge of Logan's draft stock uh, tell me that nearly every NFL team uh, had a second to fourth round grade on him. With a, I think Logan was told he had about a five percent chance of being drafted in the first round. So Thursday was expected to be a quick, pretty quiet night for him and his family, and and it was uh, for the most part. But the interesting part about Thursday was Logan was keeping just as close of an eye on the other players at his position, the guys that were, you know, in that first tier of inside linebackers. I guess you would say the guys that were expected to be first round picks. Uh, as much as he was keeping an eye on, on his on himself and whether he was going to get picked or not, because every pick in the draft is slotted a monetary value as far as how much money you can make uh, on your rookie contract. So the further that you slide in the draft, the less money you're going to be able to make in your first contract in the NFL. So, you know, it got within, you know, the first 20, 21, 22 picks – um, there weren't any inside linebackers that had come off the board. Now, you can sit there and debate whether Isaiah Simmons, the, the freak athlete from Clemson who was taken by the Cardinals, I think, eighth overall. You can argue whether he's an inside linebacker or not. Uh, I think ESPN, maybe some other people had his position listed as inside linebacker, but uh, he's going to play outside linebacker, maybe even safety for the Cardinals at the next level. I mean, th- th- that's probably where he projects uh, more favorably. But um, – you know, besides him, there weren't any other potential inside linebackers that had been taken. And so you could start feeling the, some of the tension, maybe some nerves at that point because they, Logan wanted some of those other guys to go in front of him so that 
that obviously would elevate his stock for Friday. And so, you know, he had some family and friends talking about, hey, we need some linebackers to start going off the board. And um, sure enough, the, the San Diego Chargers traded up and took Kenneth Murray from Oklahoma with the 23rd overall pick. And that started a, a late run of inside linebackers there in the first round. Then you had Texas Tech's Jordan Brooks and um, LSU's Patrick Queen go with back-to-back picks to the uh, Seahawks and the Ravens. So, uh, that was the good news for Logan on on Thursday. Uh, he got a call from his agent after the first round Thursday night that basically told him at that point it was between him and Willie Gay, the linebacker from Mississippi State, as to which one of them would be the first inside linebacker taken on the second day of the draft, probably sometime late in the second round, uh, early third round. And sure enough, Logan ends up getting taken with the first pick in the third round. And that day Friday was obviously a little more stressful for him and his family. You could sort of feel the, the tension thicken as the, as the uh, second round went on. I would say probably about midway through the second round, Logan was kind of over it in terms of, of waiting and, and waiting for that call that, you know, obviously is going to um, change your life and fulfill what had been an uh, NFL dream for him his entire life. It, it was interesting because, you know, him and Willie Gay were actually taking two or three picks um, apart from each other. Uh, Willie Gay went to the Chiefs with one of the last picks in the second round. And then Logan went, obviously, with the first pick in the third round to the Bengals. And even if uh, Willie Gay had still been on the board with the first pick in the third round, I, I think the Bengals would have drafted Logan ahead of him because they look, they've they've been in love with Logan Wilson ever since they really met with him down at the senior bowl uh, because the Bengals brass, including head coach Zach Taylor, they were one of the coaching staffs down there at, uh, in Mobile for the senior bowl coaching the South team and, and Logan played for the North team, but you know, they got a chance to meet and talk to players from the opposing team. And they talked to Logan down there and, um, really fell in love with them. And, and Zach Taylor wouldn't say after the draft whether Logan was the number one inside linebacker on their draft board. Um, but, I mean, he was the first of three linebackers that the Bengals t- took in the draft. So chances are good he probably was. And, I, look, I fully expect Logan to go to Cincinnati and uh, at the very least be a part of that rotation at linebacker his rookie season I mean they drafted him to make an instant impact on that defense because they just don't have a whole lot um, at the second level of their of their defense and which is the reason they drafted three linebackers and um, you know look Logan's probably uh, right I mentioned earlier the, the that first tier of inside linebackers I mean guys like Kenneth Murray and Patrick Queen and some of those guys, I mean, they, they were sort of that top tier of inside linebackers um, when it just comes to pure speed, athleticism, and, and all that stuff. But you could certainly make the argument that there was not a more complete inside linebacker prospect in this draft uh, than Logan Wilson. When you combine uh, his tackling ability, his football IQ, and then his ability to, to play pass coverage just as well as anything else, you know, the Bengals need three down linebackers. I mean, every team in the NFL needs three down linebackers that can play the pass just as well as they can fill holes and, and stop the run. And uh, obviously, Logan, with his background as a, as a defensive back in high school at Natrona County High School, um, you know, that obviously uh, translated into the 
to his time at Wyoming. I mean, finished his career with 10 interceptions, including four his senior year, which led all FBS linebackers. Um, you know, he, he is the guy that, um, you know, I think the Bengals have wanted really from day one. Um, they got their guy. And in today's game, you got to be able to cover uh, as a linebacker those, those speedy slot receivers, those hybrid tight ends. Um, and then also quarterbacks, because obviously Logan is going to a division in the AFC North that has Lamar Jackson, which just torched everybody <laughs> last season with the Baltimore Ravens. So, um, you know, you got to have a guy that can that can run uh, and, and can cover space and, and get sideline to sideline. And um, Logan is a guy that can do all of that. And, yeah, I would fully expect him to, um, you know, be a guy that the Bengals plug in right away. And uh, if, if he's isn't able to um, get a starting job as a rookie, I would expect him, like I said, to to get plenty of snaps and be part of that rotation uh, immediately in Cincinnati. So that's something to obviously keep an eye on with these guys as they make the transition into the NFL and exactly when they'll get a chance to meet their new teams in person and join them and start working out is anyone's guess. Uh, you know, usually – uh, it's just a week or two after the draft that the draft, these teams draft picks and free agents um, report for rookie minicamp. But obviously that won't be happening in person. It's probably going to all happen virtually. So you're probably looking at training camp maybe late this summer before these guys actually get a chance to uh, report and work out with their teams for the first time in person. Um, but uh, Logan and Cash will obviously be getting an opportunity. So will Tyler Hall, who signed a free agent deal with the Atlanta Falcons. And we'll see if any other uh, former Wyoming players uh, either sign later as free agents or possibly get a chance at a, at a tryout with the team. But uh, I'm going to switch gears now and, and talk some Wyoming basketball because uh, the Cowboys now uh, have a new leader at the helm and uh, Jeff Linder the former Northern Colorado coach who was hired by Tom Berman right after the Mountain West tournament, a few days after that um, magical run that uh, Wyoming made um, in Las Vegas to the Mountain West tournament semifinals there, but um, that was not enough to uh, keep Allen Edwards' job. Uh, the Cowboys finished 9-24 and overall, just a one-win improvement from their record last season. And so now the Cowboys are starting over in their men's basketball program with Jeff Linder. And frankly, I think Wyoming did about as good as it could with this hire, uh, just considering where their program is at and considering what Jeff Linder was doing at Northern Colorado. Uh, three straight 20-win seasons there. Uh, the Bears had a program record 26 wins just a few year, a couple of years back. And uh, Jeff Linder was one of the hottest names in coaching circles, at least among mid-major names. Um, you know, it, it was only a matter of when, not if, Jeff Linder was going to get a job at a bigger program. And a credit to Wyoming and Tom Berman for uh, being on top of that and, and acting swiftly here. I mean, I, I've, I've been told that Tom Berman had been uh, looking at Jeff Linder even last year. Uh, in case he decided to make a change, and obviously he did. And um, now Jeff Linder is the new head men's basketball coach at Wyoming, and uh, it's going to look a little bit different, uh, I, probably a lot different, I should say, uh, just in terms of the style of play. Um, Jeff Linder's teams like to shoot a lot of three-pointers, 
Northern Colorado, which, by the way, was the number two seed in the Big Sky Tournament this year and had as good a chance as anybody in that league is getting the uh, league's automatic bid to the NCAA Tournament. Uh, they've shot the second most threes over the last two seasons in the Big Sky. Uh, but not only did Jeff Linder's team shoot a lot of threes, they're efficient too. Um, they were top 10 in the country this past season in three-point field goal percentage. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a system uh, that he believes in uh, and that they're very good at, at, or at least have been at Northern Colorado. Of course, uh, Jeff has experience in the Mountain West, having been an assistant for Leon Rice at Boise State for six seasons before taking the Northern Colorado job. Um, helped coach Derek Marks, a former Mountain West player of the year there. Um, so, I mean, he knows this area well. He knows the conference well. Um, just, an, I think, an, an all-around good fit um, and a solid hire for Wyoming. Now, look, him and his staff have their work cut out for them just in terms of, of getting this the, the on-court product turned around at Wyoming. They'll obviously have to win games, a lot, a lot more games than um, Allen Edwards and company did the last couple of years. Um, but Linder has made a positive first impression, particularly on the recruiting front, by signing a six-man recruiting class last month. Uh, and none of those recruits were committed to Wyoming before Linder took the job. Now, a couple of them, uh, high school guards, Xavier Ducell and Marcus Williams, had signed with Linder uh, when he was at Northern Colorado, have been released from their scholarships and have since signed with Wyoming. But him and his, his staff made up a lot of ground in a short amount of time uh, to get a six-man recruiting class signed. That was ranked number one in the Mountain West uh, by rivals at the time that the signing class was signed. Um, now, some of that has to do with the fact that Wyoming – uh, signed six players, which I think is more than anybody else in the Mountain West did during this current recruiting cycle. Uh, I might have to double-check that. But uh, four of the players were ranked three-star prospects. Three of them are junior college players. And, look, Wyoming's going to need most of these guys to contribute immediately. Uh, Jeff Linder may have done his best recruiting job by getting uh, Hunter Maldonado, Wyoming's leading scorer and rebounder, to return to the program. Uh, Hunter Thompson's also returning. Quan Marble's returning. Kenny Foster's returning. Uh, but Wyoming still had five players enter the transfer portal. And Jeff Linder said none of those guys are going to be coming back. So that's the reason they were able to sign six uh, players during uh, the spring signing period, and they still have two scholarships available if they want to use those and add players later at some point. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but as is expected, anytime there's a coaching change, there's a lot of roster turnover here for Wyoming, uh, and they're going to need all of these guys uh, are the ones that are available to uh, to step in and, and contribute immediately. And the guys you expect to step in and make an impact from day one are the junior college guys. You look at guys like Drake Jeffries and Drew Lamont, I would expect those two um, to maybe step into the starting five right away. Uh, I know Wyoming is really high on those guys. Um, Drake Jeffries, who played his junior college ball in Iowa, Shot nearly 45% from three-point range last season, and it is a big wing at six foot five, and um, you know it can see, it can shoot and rise up and shoot over a lot of the smaller guards, and, and it can do a do a lot of different things for them. And then Drew Lamont is a is a six eight forward who actually started his college career at uh, American University and played at a junior college uh, in Florida last year. Uh, but I mean, he shot right at 40% from three. I mean the 
there's no coincidence that they went out and got a bunch of shooters. Uh, they had to add more shooting talent, uh, you know, to, to, to run this system that Jeff Linder wants to run. So um, this is strictly a somewhat educated opinion on my part. Uh, this is a way too early projection for me. But if I had to guess right now, I would probably say that Wyoming's starting five for their first game next season would probably be Hunter Maldonado, Quan Marble, uh, Drake Jeffries, Drew Lamont, and then Hunter Thompson at the five. Um, that, that's just how I see it playing out way too early right now. Obviously, these guys have to have to get on campus. You have to work out. There's, there's going to be tons of competition with this many new faces for, for starting jobs and for minutes next year. But, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see – how all that plays out once these guys are actually able to to get on campus and to start working out together and building chemistry as the Cowboys enter a new era of men's basketball. But uh, we're almost 25 minutes in here, so I'm going to take a break, and when I return, uh, I'm going to dive into some college football and what that may look like this coming season. Welcome back into the postcast, and now I'm going to address the most pressing concern that players, coaches, athletic directors, presidents, and college football fans have at this point, and that is, will there be a college football season in some form or fashion in 2020? Um, Look, this is all speculation and strictly hypotheticals that we're talking about, because frankly, nobody knows when we're going to get back to some sense of normalcy. Uh, You've got coaches and athletic directors talking about what they want to happen, what they hope will happen here in a few months. But uh, you know, for the first time, probably in, in, in their professional careers, they're powerless when it comes to making a determination on this coming college football season, because they won't be the ones making the decision on when it returns. Um, this is still largely going to be off the recommendations of doctors, public health officials, government officials um, to tell us where we're at with this coronavirus outbreak in uh, another month, two or three, whenever that time comes. And Craig Thompson, the commissioner of the Mountain West, has already come out and said that there aren't going to be any more sporting events held at the member institutions until those college campuses open back up again. And I think you're going to see a lot of conferences probably fall in line with that. But I wanted to hit mainly on some of the contingency plans that are being thrown out there in case there is football that's able to be played at some point this year, which I do think that's going to be the case. But here's the thing. You know, these conferences have schools in multiple states. And for the schools that are in city, the hotspot cities like New York, 
uh, New Jersey, uh, Seattle, Los Angeles, a lot of the bigger cities that where the outbreak is far more severe, there's no way that those schools in those cities are going to be able to get their students back on campus the same time as a school like Wyoming might be. And you can bet coaches will raise hell over the fact that, hey, these other schools are able to get their players back on campus sooner and start practicing sooner, though at that point – I think most conference commissioners will probably step in and make sure that didn't happen. But when you have a situation where not every college campus is going to be able to reopen at the same time and not every team is going to be able to start that four, six weeks they need to prepare for the season at the same time, common sense would tell you that not all teams are going to be able are going to be ready to start their season in late August and early September. So what are the contingency plans? Well, you know, in order to try to start the season on time or as close to on time as possible, I continue to see where people talk about the idea of playing games without fans, which is an idea that I don't understand why uh, it continues to be talked about uh, because that's essentially what got us here in the first place, right? I mean, if you remember when before sports started being canceled, it was when most uh, conferences were starting their basketball tournaments. And then you had conference commissioners and even the NCAA saying, yeah, we're going to play these games without fans. But it was a player, not a fan, um, that first tested positive for this uh, in terms of the sports world. And that was Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz. And as soon as that happened, uh, the NBA shut down and virtually every other sport followed suit. So I don't understand why people think athletes are somehow immune to this. I mean, I never really understood the idea of trying to play these games without fans because you still have uh, players, coaches, officials that are you know running up and down the court and, and breathing and sweating on each other for two hours. I mean, eventually that contact was going to result in somebody getting the virus. And obviously Rudy Gobert was the first one that sort of, sort of started the whole domino effect. And so I'm not sure why that keeps being talked about other than if the plan were to test all the players and coaches uh, before they started practicing again, which you certainly could do, but that's another expense because somebody's got to pay for those tests. Would it come out of uh, the kids or their parents' pockets? Would the athletic department or the school pick up the tab for that? Is there already insurance in place for current student athletes where something like that would be covered? Um, but I think maybe it, the primary reason that some schools may not even want to go that route uh, is because of possible legal ramifications that could come up from that. Because look, even if you had, let's just say hypothetically, some schools that would be able to reopen their campuses in July or August, um, and those schools or the NCAA said, Yo, we'll let our teams come back and start practicing as long as they test all of the players and coaches beforehand. So all the players and coaches get tested before starting practices, and they all test negative for it. But the virus is still out there. They don't really practice a whole lot of social distancing when they're around other people. And then you get a week or two into practice and boom, a player or coach uh, gets sick and tests positive for the virus. What's to stop them from going to the school or the NCAA and say, hey, you knew this virus was still out there, and yet we started practicing anyway and suing the schools of the NCAA for negligence. So I think ultimately it all comes back to if it's not safe enough for fans to attend games, and it's certainly not safe enough for players to play in them. 
Another scenario or another contingency plan that Craig Thompson and both Tom Berman have talked about, and I know I'm sure other uh, conferences, their commissioners and coaches have have also discussed is just moving the entire season to the spring and playing spring football, which I think would be great for all the schools that aren't in Colorado or Wyoming or the Dakotas or Minnesota where you would be playing your entire season during your peak winter months. And could you imagine Wyoming trying to play all all of its games in January, February, or March? For any of you that are listening to this, I'm not telling you anything you already don't already know, but Wyoming already plays some snow games late in the season in November. Uh, I mean, there was the uh, border war a few years ago where it snowed the entire second half. Uh, you had the Air Force game back in 2018, and then the border war uh, last year when Colorado State came to Laramie. Uh, that is the coldest I have ever been, I think, in my life. I mean, it was frigid that night. There, there wasn't a ton of snow, but I mean, when you mix the snow and the and the single digit temperatures and 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 the wind chill, I mean, that man playing an entire season. In Wyoming, um, you know, from January to March or April or whenever they might play it, ooh, that would be that would be rough. Um, like I just keep seeing the visual of a snowplow on the sideline that would have to come on the field and clear off the yard lines after every series, and then not to mention the effect it would have on attendance. I mean, look, if for anybody that's lived in Wyoming for any extended period of time you know that it's not uncommon for the major highways in the state to be closed multiple times during the peak winter months. Um, so that's another thing that has to be considered. Now, look, I think if you went to Tom Berman and said, hey, we can either not play a season and lose all of that money from the Mountain West TV contract and ticket sales that largely keep the athletic department operating or we can play a full season from January to March. I think they would go with the latter and figure out a way to make it work, but I don't think that that's a plan that he or many athletic directors around the Mountain West want to be spending a whole lot of time seriously entertaining. I think that would be um, a last resort for them. Um, I think the most probable and most likely scenario would be a delayed or shortened season, where maybe you know if you're not able to start – uh, playing games in September. Maybe you just cut out your whole non-conference schedule, move the conference slate up um, to October, November, and try to get it knocked out by December. And try to keep the college football season on as close to its regular schedule as possible. Or maybe you just postpone the entire season another month and maybe play till the end of December, beginning of January. Uh, where maybe the you, you know you start having the the, the bowl games and the, and the college football playoff um, in January and maybe into early February. Um, I think I think again I think that's probably the most likely scenario because again you're not going to have uh, all of the college campuses opening at the same time. So I think everything is just going to be pushed back. But look, they've got plenty of time. I mean, what we just got into uh, May. So you still got a couple months until you need to decide really by probably early July or mid-July exactly what you're going to do uh, because that's really the the time frame you're looking at to try to start getting your team reassembled on campus and start trying to work toward that August 1st start of, of fall camp around the country. Um, but we, nobody really knows. I mean, we are all sitting here waiting and 
uh, trying to figure out exactly what happens and where the spread of this virus will be in, a, in another month or two, if it's contained enough um, to where we can get back to some semblance of normalcy sooner rather than later. I'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, before I get out of here, I, I did want to mention this. Um, you know, like I'm sure most of you have been financially impacted by this. Um, that impact has reached the Star Tribune. Um, I will be starting a two-week furlough uh, next week. So I won't be doing any reporting or podcasts for the Star Tribune during that time. Uh, fortunately, I will be coming back after that. But uh, I did want to just mention that. Um, my goal is to get this podcast back on a regular weekly schedule. Uh, but to be completely honest, I don't know how soon that will happen. Um, it may be late summer, early fall before we can start doing that again. Uh, but we'll obviously keep you guys updated. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Pokes Authority. You can follow me on Twitter at Davis E. Potter. Uh, this podcast is on iTunes, Google Play, Omni, and Spotify. So be sure to download it, share it, uh, and give us that five-star rating. And the last thing I want to say before I get out of here is if you haven't already and you've enjoyed our coverage during this time, please, please, please subscribe to the Star Tribune. Um, and look, I, you can call me biased if you want to, but I truly do think that uh, our publication has covered the coronavirus outbreak in Wyoming in all aspects better than any other media outlet in the state. But regardless of what the publication is or, or what your source of information is, please support local journalism. Uh, you know, I'm 32 years old and I tell people all the time that outside of 9-11, this is one of, if not the biggest story of my lifetime. And we're trying to cover it as thoroughly and comprehensively as we can. Um, but obviously with me and other reporters having to go on furlough, uh, that cuts into the amount of reporters that we have and the amount of resources that we need really to keep you as informed uh, as you need to be about a story that is, you know, changing by the day, if not by the hour. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're able to, uh, please support us, please support local journalism. You can subscribe to the Star Tribune at trib.com. Um, but as always, I appreciate all of you guys for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I will catch up with you down the road.